Lord. That I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and see him in his temple. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord today. Are you? Amen. Would you turn to your left and your right and say, I'm glad to be here. And mean it. <laughs> All right, so we have good news and bad news. We're going to go with good news first. Good news is that this sermon is the last installment on the series for the whole book of 1 Samuel. Finally, we're through with the book of Samuel, chapter 31. The bad news is that this story, chapter 31, is a tragedy. It's dark, depressing, and sad. It's a tragedy. Now, sometimes we have this, you know, good news and bad news in our lives, right? So maybe today is good news. Tomorrow, maybe, you will have something bad happening to your life. But we go through with it, and we get through with it because of the help of the Lord. Would you say amen to that? Let me set, it up, set this up. In Germany after 1945, that's World War II. Anyone who has been born in 1945? Nah, don't raise your hand. So in Germany after World War II, that's 1945, there's an estimate death of about 5 to 6 million German soldiers who fought and died in battle. There's about 3 million civilian casualties and about 6 million Jews, Poles, Russians, homosexuals, and dissidents who were executed and murdered by the Nazi party in the name of race superiority. That is very bad. I would consider Adolf Hitler to be an evil genius, like Megamind. You know, I, I saw that cartoon Megamind. He was like laughing and, you know, with an evil laugh. Adolf Hitler was like that. Well, Adolf Hitler, being the chancellor of the German uh, country, dreamt of putting up and creating another 1,000 year of reign. That's why it's called Third Reich. It's another 1,000 year of German superiority. But the thing is, it did not last. Because in 1945, the Allied forces stopped him from his, from his, um, uh, from his plans. During that time, in 1945, from 1933 to 1945, Germany has been the most dominant power in Europe. In fact, he has controlled many countries in Europe, including Austria, Poland, Czechoslovakia, France, Denmark, Norway, Belgium, and the Netherlands. He's become a dominant power, but his dream of 1,000-year reign was cut short. Let me show you a picture. What you see on the screen is a photograph of a parking lot. It's an easy parking lot, which, which you won't recognize. But if you go there, 30 feet below this parking lot was the location of the Fuhrer bunker. What is the Fuhrer bunker? This was the White House of the Third Reich. This was the, the headquarters of the Third Reich. This is where Hitler operated and hid in the last few years of his life, 30 feet below the ground. So on 1945, April 29, the Russians broke through the line, and Hitler knew that his end is going to come. So for the last time, he and his wife went to their private quarters. He took a pistol, put it in his right temple, and shot himself. His wife took cyanide and died eventually. Let me read to you an excerpt of his last will and testament he made the day before he committed suicide. Quote, I myself and my wife, in order to escape the disgrace of deposition or capitulation, 
choose death. It is our wish to be burnt immediately on the spot where I have carried out the greatest part of my daily work in the course of 12 years service to my people. End quote. By 3.30 p.m., the soldiers went, went into their private quarters, saw the dead bodies, took out the dead bodies, poured gasoline on them, and burned them until their bodies were unrecognizable. This is the man who prided himself as an ubermensch. That's a German word for superman. He died a mortal death. When you open the book of the second Samuel, David will hear the news about the death of Saul, and he will write a lament, and he will repeatedly say how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. Because in the last chapter of 1 Samuel 31, Saul will commit suicide, and he will die in his own hands. This is tragedy, to say the least. This is not like your average movie where it always ends in a positive note. I've seen all the diehards, Bruce Willis never dies. Right? Arnold Schwarzenegger never dies. Brad Pitt never dies. Denzel Washington. This is, this is an extraordinary kind of movie. This is tragedy. Saul died a tragic death because he was overcome by fear of getting caught and captured by the enemy and become a sport. So he, instead of being caught and captured, he committed suicide. And you got to hear the poetry in this one. If, when I'm going to read to you verse 6, I would like you to hear the poetry, the cadence, and the words. At least the English translators tried this. Chapter 31, verse 6. It says, Thus Saul died, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Such a tragedy. I mean, he could have said they all died, but, you know, he enumerated everything, and then he said on the same day, together. Fast forward when the time, when the Israelites came back from exile in Babylon, and they used the story of Saul as a rallying point. It's not because they were inspired by the story of Saul, but because they saw themselves in the story of Saul, they also broke faith with God. And then so he, they summarized and recapitulated this portion but gave in a theological perspective as to why Saul was killed in battle. First Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, it says, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted the medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death. And turned the kingdom over to this David, the son of Jesse. Now, if you happen to read Hebrew, you will find a certain sort of cadence in, the, in how the writer put the story. You will hear prominently three words here. I'm just going to say it, but you don't have to memorize or anything. The words mut, ma'al, and sha'al, those are Hebrew words. They're equivalent to the words death, unfaithful, and seek. So the Bible would say that soul died, that's mut. Because he was unfaithful, he broke faith, that's Ma'al, and he did not seek the Lord, Sha'al. And the Bible was very definitive when it says, therefore the Lord put him to death. You see, death was the consequence of his rebellion. Flash news, God doesn't take rebellion lightly. Rebellion is a serious business. See, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible constantly talks about rebellion. Adam and Eve, rebellion. Noah's flood, rebellion. 
Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, rebellion. The Israelites in the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, rebellion. And every time they worship idols, rebellion. The culmination of rebellion happened in the time of Jesus when the king of Israel was rejected by the nation itself. Rebellion. And the Bible said that God will come back to judge the living and the dead. See, rebellion will always have a consequence. I think that whenever we read the Bible, our normal tendency is to find blessing and prosperity and good health and how to be a good wife and how to be a good husband. But in doing so, we're missing the point. There's, there are things happening that are more important than those things that we might miss when we read the Bible because we're so focused on that thing. See, in the story of Saul's rebellion, the story of Saul's rebellion was also mirroring the story of the nation's rebellion. It's not just Saul, but the whole nation is in rebellion against God. In 1 Samuel 31, Saul committed suicide. The death of Saul is more than just about Saul. It's not about why it's wrong to commit suicide or is it wrong to commit suicide? There's, there's more to it. 1 Samuel 31 is a chapter about the kingdom of God, how God executes judgments, how all forms of rebellion have consequences, and the ultimate consequence of rebellion is death. The book of Samuel started when the people started to ask God for a king. Now, if you read the Bible from Genesis all the way to Samuel, you will notice that Israel have no other God. When they were released from Egypt, there was no king installed because God was king. So in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they demanded for a king from God, God was insulted. He was rejected by the people. The Bible calls it rebellion. Let me read to you chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. It says, Then all the leaders, or the elders of Israel, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all nations." Appoint for us a king. Like, we don't like you anymore. Appoint for us somebody else. It's like, my neighbor has that. I want that too. My other neighbor, the Ammonite, has a king. I want king too. The Egyptians have Pharaoh. I want Pharaoh too. The people have asked God for a king and therefore rejected God as their own king. It says in verse 6, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, I cannot say it more clearly than this one. God said, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. It's not only Saul who is in rebellion, the whole nation was in rebellion. In Latin they say, vox populi vox deo, the voice of the people is the voice of God. When the former president, Joseph Ejercito Estrada, was elected president, he said this, Vox Populi, Vox Deo. Well, in this context, it's not true. In this context, it's, it's rebellion. Now, if this is your first time hearing about Saul, who is this guy? Let me summarize his life. He was appointed as king because he passed only one qualification. Only one qualification. Height. He was taller than any other Israelites by two feet. Amazing. But when he became king, he abused his authority and did not fully obey the Lord. In other words, he committed impeachable acts on becoming of a king. 
And no, it has nothing to do with corruption. It has nothing to do with his, you know, helping his sons gain business from other countries. No, he did not do that. Nothing like that. He committed rebellion against Yahweh. How so? I mean, here's the question. How can the king commit rebellion when he's already the king? Does it make sense, right? Well, because Israel has a unique calling. Yahweh was the king of Israel. That means Saul was the deputy king, the second in command, the executor of God's will. And when the deputy king decides to rule in contravention to the wishes of the real king, it's called rebellion. So God kills him in the end of the story. Here's the principle. God takes rebellion seriously even when we don't. Now sometimes we're not keen on this one, especially children. I mean, when children, you know, make mistakes, we tell them, don't do that again. And then they do it again. They try to test you if you're serious about your threats. Don't do this again. I'm going to follow you. That's what I tell my kids. I'm going to follow you. I have a belt here. It's going to hurt you. And then they try to, you know, they're not taking seriously. See, God takes rebellion seriously even when we don't. In fact, the whole Bible, the backdrop of the whole Bible is rebellion. Do not get bogged down by details of the do's and the don'ts. Do this and do that and do this. You know, there's so many things in the Bible that we're so fascinated with, especially eating of pork. Anyone not eating pork? See, the problem is that there are Christians who judge other Christians who eat lachon and dilugoan, but they themselves eat lobster, shrimps, and cheeseburger. Did you know that the Bible also prohibits eating lobster, shrimps, and cheeseburger? But that's not the point of the Bible. We're getting distracted. The whole point of the Bible is that there are important events happening in every page of the Bible. And it's about God taking rebellion seriously even when we don't. There's a common objection about the gospel message. Pastor, what about those people? Will they go to hell if they don't hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will people simply go to hell because they did not hear about Jesus Christ? The answer is no. People would not go to hell just because they did not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. People will go to hell because they chose to continue in their rebellion against God. People will go to hell because they did not heed the warning of God. There are so many people I can cite in the Bible who did not hear about Jesus Christ, who did not hear the gospel, but I'm sure they will not go to hell. I'm, I can start with Abel and Noah and Enoch, and Abraham, and Joseph, and Isaac. And are you following me? These people have not heard the gospel or Jesus Christ, and yet these people in the book of Hebrews are called saints. People are going to hell because they decided to continue in their rebellion against God. You see, if God is just, and He is just, He would have spoken enough, revealed Himself enough, put together circumstances in our lives so that at the end of the day, we can never deny that God has spoken to you, directed you, nudged you, and told you, revealed himself to you that he's God. If you're saying, for the past couple of months, Pastor, I feel like I don't hear anything from God. It, I feel like God has abandoned me or anything like that. Well, I'm telling you right now, God's speaking to you through his word. You don't need dreams or visions for you to say, God has spoken to me. This word, the Bible, is God's word directly to you. God speaking to you right now. And if you listen to the word intently, I would say you can guarantee it. God speaking to you right now. 
Let's talk about rebellion. Genesis chapter 3. This is the ultimate and mother of all rebellion. This is the OG of all rebellion. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve conspired with the serpent in his rebellion. You remember that? The serpent came slithering. I don't know if it really happened slithering. But the serpent went and said to Adam and Eve, this fruit is good. It's going to open your eyes and it'll make you like God. That's Genesis chapter 3. Well, the problem is, aren't they already like God? Because the Bible said they were made in the image of God, and therefore they are like God. Why is the serpent telling them, if you eat this, it's going to open your eyes, and you will become like God? The temptation really is not for them to become like God, because they are already like God. The temptation is more than that. The temptation is that if you eat this fruit, you won't need God to tell you what is right and wrong. You can determine for yourself what is right and wrong. The temptation was to replace God. You don't need God. You can be God. So when God created the world, the Bible said it was good. See, God knows the definition of what is good. He's the ultimate source of all that's good. And he's saying to Abraham, Adam and Eve, rather, is that this fruit is not good for you. Don't eat this. If you eat this, you will die. But they won't believe. Because when, when the serpent went there, he says, this is good. I mean, it's so hard to pass up. Because it was good. The Bible said, Eve saw that it was good for food, so she took and she ate. It was so good. The reason why I don't bring my wife to shopping malls is because of this. Too many temptations. Outlet malls are evil. Black Fridays are... Okay, I'm going to shut on that. If the Garden of Eden was God's white house, evicting Adam and Eve from the garden was necessary, was necessary to maintain the integrity of the house. Rebellion has a consequence. Did you notice that in Genesis chapter 3, there was no mention of redemption, restoration, forgiveness? Because they were not forgiven. In fact, they were kicked out from the garden. Well, well, before they were kicked out from the garden, God gave them leather jeans and leather jackets to replace their vegetarian outfits. Because they, they sew themselves fig leaves. But they were not forgiven. In fact, God put cherubim to guard the entrance of the garden and flaming sword which means you're not welcome anymore your past was revoked you were kicked out evicted exiled see there's a consequence for rebellion and god doesn't take it lightly now genesis chapter 6 when you turn to genesis chapter 6 it will sound like the same as genesis chapter 3 eve saw she took and she ate. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, okay, so far so good, the sons of God, these are heavenly creatures, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Let me say that again. When the sons of God saw the daughters of man, saw, and they took as their wives, and they chose. The same with, uh, with Eve. She saw, she took, and she ate. 
the writer of Genesis seems to be telling us, giving us clues how to read the book of Genesis. To put this in context, this rebellion was put on a greater scale because it involved not just Adam and Eve, but the whole of humanity. After this one, you know, why, why is this rebellion? Because right after this one, we have the story of flood. And what's the flood all about? It's not about the rainbow, okay? It's about the wiping of every human life on earth. God killed everyone through the flood. It was a consequence. The consequence is death. See, the flood is the consequence. The principle is still the same. God takes rebellion seriously. Here's the second principle. Death is the ultimate consequence of rebellion. But you say, what kind of death? What kind of death is the ultimate consequence of rebellion? Now, Jesus spoke about this death, but in a different fashion. Let me show you Luke chapter 10. This was when his disciples came back from ministry, from mission field, and they were casting out demons. And they were so happy, and they were happy to report to Jesus Christ. It says, in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, if the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, Jesus could have said, hooray, good luck, good job. I, I always tell my kids, good job. But you don't see good job in here. Instead, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Why is that so? Why is is it about Satan now? You see, the image of Satan falling like lightning from heaven is an image of exile. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, exile. The flood, the people were exiled, wiped out from the face of the earth. That's That's a language for exile. Satan falling like lightning from heaven is a language of exile. What Jesus was actually doing here was he was quoting from Isaiah chapter 14. Because in Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah was writing about the king of Babylon who saw himself to be the greatest of all. During the time of the king of Babylon, it was the greatest empire of all. So the king of Babylon said to himself, I am the king of kings and the lord of lords. He used the title. And he saw himself to be like God. In fact, in Babylon, kings are considered gods. And so Jesus quote from Isaiah, Isaiah was comparing the king of Babylon to the sons of gods. Listen here, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. He said, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star. The Hebrew word for day star is Hillel. But when it's translated to Latin, it's Luciferus. That's why in English, you think it's Lucifer here. No, it's day star. Day star is for any supernatural being, the son of dawn. It says, how you are cut to the ground, you who laid the nations low. See, when you read Saul breaking faith with God and dying in the battlefield, when you see Adam and Eve exiled from the Garden of Eden, when you see the story of the flood and people being wiped out from the face of the earth, it's the language for exile. Say it with me, exile. Thank you very much. Let me take you deeper. Have you ever wondered what's the temptation of Jesus really all about? There were three temptations, right? Now, depending on what book you're reading, Matthew or Luke, but second temptation was Satan brought Jesus to the top of the mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I'm guessing it's nighttime. And Jesus was looking at the lights in every street corner, in every establishment, in every house. And Satan was showing him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he said, All this I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What is this temptation all about? 
Remember Eve? She saw, she took, she ate. Genesis chapter 6, they saw, they took, and they chose. This is the same MO of Satan. He was trying to recruit Jesus to join him in his rebellion. He was offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world on a silver platter. He was trying to recruit Jesus by showing him the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus sees them, the kingdoms of the world, Jesus can take for himself and become king. But what would that look like? I'm trying to guess what's going on here. Satan would probably be saying, look at all the kingdoms of the world. They're so beautiful. They're on sale, 75% off. But the question is, at what cost? At what cost? All all you got to do, according to Satan, is to acknowledge me as your superior, bow down to me, and together we will reign this kingdom. That's what she's trying to offer. But the Bible calls it rebellion. There's no other word for it. I mean, who doesn't like, who doesn't like nice things? You know, from time to time, you treat yourselves with good food. You, you shop a little bit. You travel the world. Who doesn't like pay raise? Right? Who doesn't like promotion? We all like it. So think about Jesus being offered all the kingdoms of the world. Satan was offering him something more. Because he, Jesus is king. But he has no kingdom because Satan was offering him the kingdom. When he came here, he came here, he was born as a pauper. He was poor. So Satan was offering him instant glory, instant power, instant authority, instant kingship. You see, at the end of the gospel, Pilate will ask Jesus, are you king of the Jews? Are you king? Because the people have brought him to Pilate and accused him of, of treason. There's only one king in Israel. It's the Roman emperor. And so Pilate asked him, are you king? And Jesus said, you have said so. I'm king. And Pilate was kind of confused. If you're king, where's your kingdom? Where are your troops? Where are your armies? And the people that you think you are king are denying you of king. You see, there's a problem here because Satan was offering him already and Jesus refused. What this means is that Satan was forcing Jesus to negotiate on the table. Satan knew Jesus. Satan knew that Jesus is king, the future king. So if he can buy the loyalty of Jesus while he's in human form, he would have won. His rebellion would become a success. But Jesus understood the mission. He understood the temptation. He saw through the whole scheme. And so what he did, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the go-to passage of all the Jews in terms of worship and about God. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says, There's only one God, and he alone is worthy of worship. And by implication, Jesus is telling Satan that because I am the Son of God, and therefore I am worthy of worship. That's like a slap on the face. So the question is, if death is the ultimate consequence of rebellion, how, is all, how are all the angelic creatures who rebelled against God and Satan will be judged? How are they going to die? I mean, spirits don't die, correct? How are they going to die? Let me show you something from Psalm 82. If this is your first time that you will encounter this, it might be confusing because when I was studying this, I got confused too. But listen intently and open your minds on this one. 
Psalm 82 verse 1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. What does it mean? That means in the throne room of God, there's a council. These council are not people that he needs advice from. That's why he has a council. These people are his lieutenants, people who does his bidding. And so it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The gods here is Elohim. So the word Elohim in the Bible doesn't mean God. It just means spiritual being. All right? Verse 6 is very interesting. He said, you are gods. He's talking to the sons of God, the spiritual beings. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. What's interesting? Like men, you shall die. What in the world is the psalmist saying about death? Why are the heavenly beings going to die like men? The psalmist is referring to an incident in Genesis chapter 6. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took wives for themselves. Apostle Peter talked about this. Let me show it to you. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Wait, hang on. When did they sin? Genesis chapter 6 but cast them into hell and committed them in the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. See, the psalmist talked about the sons of God who rebelled against God who will die like men and that's going to be the final judgment. See, the exile was just a form of death, but that is not the final judgment. The final judgment is more than that. Hell is not even the final judgment. See, when you're angry and you say, go to hell, what do we mean by that? You say that when you're angry? Go to hell. What do you mean by that? You mean go to somewhere? Because when the Bible talks about hell, the Bible talks about a dark dungeon, a prison, sometimes called the bottomless pit. The, if this is hell, this is not the final judgment. This is not the ultimate punishment for rebellion. What is the ultimate punishment for rebellion? Revelation. Chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. It says, Then death, that's Thanatos, and Hades, that's Hades, were thrown in the lake of fire. Lake of fire, that's the ultimate judgment. This is the second death. See, the first death that you and I will experience is having no oxygen, no more beating heart. That's us. The heavenly beings who rebelled against God, they were thrown out from heaven. Exile. That's their first death. Second death is that we, both us humans and the heavenly beings who rebelled, will be put in the lake of fire. That's the second death. It says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. How scary is the lake of fire? Now, I lived in Arizona for quite some time. Every summer, we get to at least 130 degrees Fahrenheit. You can cook eggs if you crack it on top of uh, your car's hood. It, it'll get cooked. That's how hot it is. People die when they leave their children inside their car and go to shopping malls. I'm going to buy something like eggs from Walmart. And then when they come back, their children are dead because they're cooked inside. It's hot. So whenever people ask me, how hot is there? Is it in Arizona? I would say, this is the sun. This is us. <laughs> it's too near. It's hot. 
But it says here they will be thrown in the lake of fire. See, the ultimate punishment is not hell. It is the lake of fire. So when the psalmist said the sons of God will die like men, he was referring to the second death, the lake of fire. When David quotes in 1 Samuel chapter 1, he writes a lament, he said, how the mighty have fallen, how the mighty have fallen. He was referring to Saul's death, who committed suicide. And yet, this harks back all the way to Genesis chapter 6, where it says, the mighty men of old, the Hagiborim, the mighty men, the Nephilim, the giant springs, like Saul, they will also fall from the lake of fire. The ultimate form of exile away from the presence of God is the ultimate death. Because in the lake of fire, that is away from the presence of God. To be out, to be cast out from the presence of God is death. Right now, we can feel it. There are times in your life or seasons in your life where you don't feel any nudge from God, any, any hint of God, and you feel like abandoned. It's almost like death. You see, for those of you, especially men, who courted women and women said no, it's like an abandonment. It's like death. In, in fact, other people, most people I know, committed suicide because of heartbreak. I mean, to be cast out from the presence of God is death. In the final scene of 1 Samuel, you will read this about Saul. This is the, the final thing about Saul in his exile. I think the tragedy is not that he committed suicide. The tragedy is what happened after he committed suicide. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 9 and 10. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. They fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan, decapitated from the head. That is tragedy. This guy was once the greatest and the first king in Israel. But the image of Saul's decapitated body is an image of an abandoned king, rejected by the very God who anointed him. Love, this doesn't have to be you. It, this doesn't have to be me. You see, the Bible said, Jesus said, many in, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? But Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, the saddest part of life is when all along, we thought and assumed that because we go to church, we serve in the ministry, we attend Bible studies, we pray diligently, we even give to church generously, is that everything is okay. And yet at the very end, the saddest part of it is that Jesus will tell us, I never knew you. I don't know you. Get away from me. You see, you can be doing all these things on Sunday, but doing something else on weekdays. What Jesus is referring to are people who are living a double life. People who have not fully surrendered to him. People who are still in rebellion. You see, we all have rebellious tendencies. But you can choose to come back to God. When the prodigal son realizes mistakes, that's rebellion, he said, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to my father. Why? 
Because no matter what wrong he did, no matter how, how bad he became, he knew the heart of his father. He knew that he will be forgiven. So he decided to come back. He said, I'm going to come back. And the Bible said that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran, embraced, and kissed him while he was there. He had not yet even spoken anything yet. He had not yet even said sorry yet. And yet his father ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. See, rebellion as a consequence, death is the ultimate cause, but God is always ready to forgive. I want to pray with you today. As the music are playing, I want to pray with you. If this is your desire, if you desire to come clean, to come home, to come back, if this is, if this is the way God is talking to you right now, I want to pray with you. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads and pray with me? Think about these things. What, what do you do? What do you need to do to come home? All you need to do is to make a decision. You're not deciding for anything. You're deciding for yourself. Because God is calling you right now. Right now. You don't need visions and dreams. You don't need anything supernatural. God is calling to you right now. And He's saying, come to God. Come home. There's no magic formula for prayer. You see, the prodigal son did not prepare a lengthy speech. You don't need either. Listen to what Jesus said. As your eyes are closed, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. If you, make, you want to make a decision to come home right now, I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to lead you in prayer. But you will have to make a decision for yourself. Speak with your heart. And say, Father, say it. Father, Father here I am. Here. Forgive me. Forgive. See, all God has to hear is your repentant heart. Let me pray for you. Father, you are good. You have created this world as good. But we rebelled against you. We, we don't want to follow your rules. We think we know better than you. And so we make our own decisions. That's why if we look at the world and what's happening around, people are just making decisions for themselves. And like us, Father, we hope we are also. We want to be independent. We want to make decisions for ourselves. And then in doing so, we have departed from what is really good that you have intended for us. Father, we are coming back to you. We want to rest. We are tired. But we want to rest in you. Accept us once again. In Jesus' name we pray.